Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you can join us. I'm really excited about our show today um, because we have a, a terrific guest. We have Dr. David Santillo, and he is one of the senior scientists and has been for 15 years for Greenpeace. And so we're going to be talking about geoengineering, which we've covered one other time on the show. And, and I'm really excited to have Dr. Santillo with us because he brings um, a research scientist perspective to this topic that we're beginning to hear more and more about in the mainstream media. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Santillo. I'm so glad that you could join us today. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. You know, when we hear terms like geoengineering or climate intervention technologies or climate engineering, uh, we sometimes get the impression that what we're talking about are engineering tools that are precise and proven, uh, very scientific. Is that an accurate impression? Uh, are, are we are we on the right path when we think of geoengineering as something very precise and proven? Well, the term geoengineering or, or climate engineering is, is a rather unfortunate, uh, perhaps even an unwise choice of, of phrase, uh, because these things have very little to do with, uh, with engineering, as uh, most engineers would understand it. The, the, the term engineering seems to have come in because the proposals relate to large-scale, very deliberate, uh, very physical interventions uh, into the, the climate system. Uh, but it implies in, in the term engineering a, a level of control, um, precision even, if you like, which are simply unachievable with the types of, uh, of schemes that are being talked about. So I think it's, uh, it gives a false sense um, that uh, this is something that, that can be very carefully uh, monitored, uh, that there's a, a control system out there that we know uh, enough about to be able to just tweak it in the direction that, that we want. And in fact, some engineers uh, really strongly object to the use of the term uh, geoengineering because they feel that it, it brings the whole discipline uh, into something of a shadow. They don't see it as an engineering uh, discipline at all. Interesting. Now, tell us, Dr. Santillo, what is geoengineering designed to accomplish? And, and I, I feel a little bit funny now even using that term. Um, if you want to suggest another term as we go through the show, that'd be fine. But um, what exactly is the problem that advocates of climate intervention, we'll say, um, seek to solve? Mm. Well, firstly, on the term, I think the term geoengineering is very widely used, and I, I think it's it's a term that's going to continue for some time, um, as long as we know what it, what it is and, and what it isn't. Um, the, the proposals that are being put forward primarily are about uh, addressing um, climate change. And we all know that the, the primary driver of, of climate change are the, the greenhouse gases, which are, are being released to the atmosphere. Uh, the fact that, uh, that, that humans are causing changes in the, the world's climate is now completely beyond denial. We're seeing the publication of the, the fifth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, last year and this year. And we know that the real solution to addressing climate change uh, is to cut emissions of greenhouse gases deeply, to cut them rapidly, uh, and to introduce uh, a completely different, much more uh, renewable-based, much more efficient system 
of energy production, more sustainable agriculture, those kinds of, uh, of structural and societal changes that will set us on a more sustainable path. What geoengineering is attempting to do is to introduce technical fixes that will uh, in some way counteract the fact that we have so far failed to bring our greenhouse gas emissions under control. And those work on, on a, uh, two main different uh, routes. One is to try and remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Another is to try to reflect some of the sun's energy back into space so that uh, the warming uh, is not so great. Now, the danger is, of course, that different uh, uh, proponents of geoengineering see different uh, points at which this kind of intervention would be uh, introduced. Some say it would only be done in an emergency when everything else had, had failed. Other people talk about using it to buy time for us to, to cut emissions. Some even say that it's a cheaper alternative than cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and, you know, those are some of the, the, the most worrying voices that we hear. You know, let's, let's not worry about what we're doing. Let's keep using fossil fuels. But let's uh, tone down the, uh, the amount of sunshine we're receiving by uh, altering the, the atmosphere. The key thing underlying all of these things is that geoengineering, as it's proposed, may do absolutely nothing to help. It could, at the same time, have quite severe, widespread, even perhaps irreversible side effects or, or collateral damage, if you like, because what we would be attempting to change are very complex natural systems that we only have a, a small uh, part of the understanding of. And if we start to push them in a direction that we think is going to solve our problems, we could well be causing other problems. I think it's really important to understand who some of the players are in this field. When you bring up these various perspectives and interjections that varying groups of, of people are bringing to this discussion, I, I'd like for our listeners to understand who we're talking about. And, and uh, if you could give us an idea of the, the players on the field, that would be really helpful. Sure. There, there are many different uh, players because there are many different schemes, and, and geoengineering is a broad term that covers a lot of different concepts. Uh, so if you're looking, for example, at uh, fertilizing the ocean, the idea of drawing down more carbon dioxide into the ocean, this is both a, an area of research interest um, with uh, institutes in the U.S., in the U.K., in Germany, in India, also in, in, in other parts of the world. But there are also some commercial organizations that are seeing ocean fertilization as a, uh, a convenient opportunity to be able to sell carbon credits, carbon offsets. Uh, and perhaps the, the best known of those uh, was the company Planktos, which is uh, no longer, it seems, in, uh, in, in operation, but that was one of the first to uh, break cover, if you like, back in 2006, 2007, uh, and to announce that it was interested in, in fertilizing a, a large area of the, uh, uh, of the, the Southern Pacific Ocean. So that's one where the players are, are, are quite clear, but uh, things are changing over time. And there, there are other companies involved there as well. When you start to look at the things like uh, managing the, uh, the alkalinity of seawater, there are, again, researchers, including researchers at Carnegie. There are companies, uh, one called Sequestrate, which is based in, in the UK. When you look at crushing up uh, minerals in order to, to spread them over land, the so-called smart stones uh, concept that would absorb carbon dioxide. This is coming from the Netherlands. Um, there are proposals for sulfate aerosol spraying uh, coming from the U.S. Um, ideas to brighten clouds over the, the sea coming from, uh, again, from the U.S. and from the U.K. 
all kinds of, uh, of proposals that are out there that are loosely arranged into this uh, concept of geoengineering and are really held together by the fact that they all involve some vision of large-scale physical intervention in order to try and push the climate um, in, uh, in, in a certain direction. Um, so I would say many different actors, some of them uh, looking at it from a research perspective, but also they're in the, in the shadows, uh, people who are looking to uh, make a lot of money out of this. And, and who are those people? I'm interested in knowing who's funding the research on geoengineering. I mean, is it a, 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 any government funding or is this particularly private foundation money? Where is the funding stream? Well, the funding at the moment is, uh, is not that transparent. Uh, it's, it's hard to know where some of the money is, is coming from in many cases. Certainly in the cases of university schemes, um, looking at, uh, at sulfate aerosols, uh, or at uh, um, cloud brightening, these kinds of things, and some of the ocean fertilization proposals, it is quite clear um, that that money is coming from, uh, from research councils, research foundations, uh, and is quite transparent. But there are people involved who are clearly seeing this as a, a commercial enterprise, uh, and it's often then much more difficult to see where that money is coming from. Uh, in some cases, though, it's very clearly private money uh, that's coming through uh, which would uh, is, is being proposed to support this kind of research, at least in the first instance. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that here in the U.S., the House of Representatives Science and Technology Committee held hearings on geoengineering in 2010, and that report is publicly available. And in that same year, um, the U.K. House of Commons Science and Technology Committee published a report on the regulation of geoengineering. How satisfied are you that there's adequate government oversight of geoengineering and if you're not satisfied what recommendations would you make to these governing bodies Mm. no we're not satisfied at all uh, because at the moment there isn't a system uh, which provides governance of an oversight of of geoengineering not even at the research stage Uh, the some years ago the the the, um, UN convention on uh, biological diversity uh, called for a science-based global, transparent, and effective regulatory and control mechanism for uh, geoengineering. We're still very, very far from that. And that's despite uh, the uh, reports like the House of Representatives report, the, uh, the House of Commons report, reports by the Royal Society, uh, reports under something called the Solar Radiation Management Governance Initiative. And now we have uh, uh, other research and, uh, and, and governance projects going on within the European Union as well. So far, those reports have flagged up the same problems, the same uncertainties, the same concerns again and again, but have proposed very, very few solutions. And perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised by that, given the, 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 the magnitude and, and the, um, the nature of, of what is being proposed. I mean, no one before has been proposing to make physical, deliberate interventions in natural systems to the extent that it would change the global climate system. And I think it's, it's worth just taking a, a, a second to reflect on, on, uh, on what that would mean. So this would be humans making a deliberate attempt to change uh, the, 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 the atmospheric, the climate, the weather systems that we all depend and rely upon uh, in the hope that they would be able to push it in a positive direction uh, while minimizing any, any negative effects. And, and that's a, 
a very difficult thing to uh, to govern, um, and I think calls into question whether we should be allowing this kind of uh, of activity and uh, research activity to go on at all. The one success that there is in governance terms, I would say, is in relation to ocean fertilization, because there there was a, an existing um, convention, a global convention, uh, or at least an international convention covering uh, many, many countries, which was set up to protect the marine environment from the introduction of materials. And that's the, the London Convention, the London Protocol. Uh, and that's the only one where there has been a concrete decision uh, to prohibit ocean fertilization unless it can be proven to be legitimate scientific research. And there's a very detailed assessment scheme to uh, enable uh, national authorities to decide what is and what isn't legitimate scientific research. And one thing that clearly isn't is anything with a commercial angle to it. That would be immediately excluded. The other types of geoengineering at the moment are not covered by a governance regime. Anywhere in the world, not just... Anywhere in the world, yeah. It's, it's, it's basically, it's, it's relying at the moment on uh, the, the fact that this is not really a, a, a politically advanced concept, uh, so that, that we're, we're in the fortunate position so far that no one has actually proposed doing one of these things. But if someone could do tomorrow, someone could come out from, from the commercial area or from the research foundation and say, we want to do uh, a, a large geoengineering experiment or even a deployment, and at that stage, governments would be struggling to know exactly what to do because they haven't agreed on any universal, consistent governance mechanism. Would any of these schemes be inexpensive enough for a private wealthy citizen or a group of private wealthy citizens to fund it and deploy it without asking for permission? Well, that's the scary thing, uh, and it really depends on, on how you look at cost. If you just look at the cost of deployment, some of these schemes, ocean fertilization, for example, some of the, uh, the aerosol spraying uh, schemes would perhaps not be that expensive to deploy, to go out there and spray whatever you want to spray into the sea or into the air um, and, to, uh, you know, and, to, and, to, and to begin to look for, for some of the consequences of that. But that's only one part of the, the cost, the actual physical cost of doing it. If you start to look at the potential costs of the collateral damage that could, uh, could result, those are, um, you know, essentially undefinable and, and, and could, be, uh, could be limitless because you don't know what else you're going to change by making these kinds of interventions. So if you start to impact rainfall in different areas, if you impact on agriculture, if you impact on, uh, on, on, uh, on human communities, on wildlife, you know, the cost could spiral. Mm-hmm. The difficulty, of course, will be in uh, tying the legal responsibility for that collateral damage to the original activity that's taken place. That's always going to be extremely difficult. And we I have a long if, history of corporations and, and, and special interests doing exactly that, uh, engaging yeah. in commercial activity in which the cost to the environment um, and, and downstream societies is not even part of the business plan, the equation um, at all. And then governmental yeah. agencies are looking at, at what they need to do in order to clean up the mess. I mean, even in terms of, of you know, product packaging and landfilling, I mean, is a very simple uh, example of that. That's certainly in the same vein. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more with Dr. David Santillo from Greenpeace's uh, Senior Scientific uh, Research Facility in the UK. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just tuning in, our guest today is Dr. David Santillo. He's a senior scientist for Greenpeace, and he's joining us from all the way across the pond, uh, the big pond. Uh, uh, he's in the UK, and he's joining us today to talk about geoengineering, to talk about some of the um, the issues that we've raised before on Go Green Radio, and I'm really glad that he could join us. You know, Dr. Santillo, there are several different geoengineering technologies and methods of delivery that are being discussed, but there are two that have really piqued my interest, and I'd like for you to discuss them in a bit more detail for our listeners. The first is this concept of spraying sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere to reflect solar radiation. And here in the U.S., uh, the EPA regulates sulfur dioxide as an air pollution, you know, mechanism. And, and I'm wondering what the thought is behind spraying something like that into the atmosphere to reflect solar radiation. Help us understand. Sure, yes. I mean, sulfur uh, chemicals are, and, and have been long recognized as being a, a form of air pollution. So this does seem uh, completely bizarre from the outset. But the idea is uh, that, that's being proposed is to put sulfate aerosols into the very high atmosphere where they would have uh, the effect of, of, uh, of reflecting back uh, some of the, uh, the sunlight which is falling on, on the earth. The idea then being that uh, rather than doing anything about the buildup of greenhouse gases uh, which are warming the earth, it would simply try to turn down the sun a little bit uh, so that less of the heat would reach the earth and less of it would then be trapped uh, by the uh, the increasing blanket of, uh, of greenhouse gases. So, you know, it's, it's a, a sticking plaster, if you like, at, at trying to fix something um, by uh, blocking uh, the sunlight. 
Um, we don't know that it would be effective. There are various models out there that suggest that it could be deployed very quickly uh, and that it could be effective in, in reducing uh, solar radiation uh, in quite a predictable way. Um, but those are models, uh, obviously. And one of the things which we have to be very careful about is an assumption that's in some of those models that the sulfate aerosols would become uniformly spread around the planet and that, therefore, everything would be very, very predictable. Some of the other models that are out there, and, and it is in the range of, of, uh, of uncertainty, show that you get a very uneven distribution of, uh, of sulfates. And that in itself begins to, uh, to point to some of the difficulties and, and fundamental problems with attempts to engineer the climate. Uh, and that is that once you've sprayed these aerosols, you have no control over exactly where they build up um, and, and, and what impacts they're going to have. The other danger, of course, is that even if they do have some effect in reducing the amount of, of solar radiation hitting the Earth, they can have a lot of unintended consequences. And one of the things that there's most focus on is the, the, the way in which it would impact on rainfall patterns. So you may well cool large areas of the, of the planet, but if at the same time you're reducing by a substantial percentage rainfall in southern America, across parts of Africa or Asia, you could be doing untold damage to uh, natural systems and to human communities um, in, the, uh, in the process of, of trying to fix the other problem. So th the other issue we've got to keep in mind is that if you're just trying to cut down the amount of, uh, of solar radiation of sunlight hitting the Earth, you're not dealing with some of the other problems associated with carbon dioxide, including the acidification of the oceans, which is coming as another result of those greenhouse gas emissions. Right. And, and on that vein, you know, and then we have talked about this quite a bit on Go Green Radio, the, you know, how the ocean is a carbon sink. And as it is trying to absorb all of this excess carbon that was once buried under the ground for millions of years and now we're releasing it into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, that the, that the, um, the ocean is becoming acidic and that's causing all kinds of issues for marine life and ecosystems that depend on the, you know, the balance of the ocean's alkalinity. And so that brings us to this idea of fertilizing the ocean as a means of carbon sequestration. Talk to us about um, those concepts and how that plays into the current health of the ocean as we know it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, these are uh, proposals um, which are based on, on a very simple reading of, uh, of, of what happens in, uh, in natural systems in the marine environment. And that is that uh, the assumption that the, the more nutrients you have in the ocean, the more algae you get growing at the surface, the more carbon dioxide they, they will absorb from the atmosphere. And then as they sink into deeper water, they carry that carbon uh, with them, and that uh, acts as a, a greater sink uh, for, for CO2 that's absorbed the, from, the, from the atmosphere. The problem is that the oceans are not that simple. Uh, there are a lot of natural uh, events which cause blooms of, uh, of plankton. We only have a, uh, are beginning to get a, an understanding of, of exactly what drives these, um, despite uh, decades of research into looking at nutrient dynamics and, and the, the way in which plankton uh, and algae uh, grow and, uh, and, and uh, develop uh, in, the, in the marine environment. So this is really a, a very simplified assumption that... Uh, uh, all you need to do is put in some more iron or some more uh, nitrogen or some more phosphorus, uh, and you can generate these kind of effects. Now, there have been a number of experiments, some of them quite large-scale experiments, into ocean fertilization as a potential geoengineering uh, technique. 
Um, and what they show is that there are almost as many answers as there have been experiments. It is incredibly unpredictable what will happen. And almost universally, you don't get this large drawdown of carbon into deeper water. You simply get a faster cycling of carbon in the surface. So in the long run, it doesn't look like it would be effective at all in uh, controlling uh, atmospheric CO2 emissions, even if you could avoid, again, the collateral damage, the unintended consequences of putting large amounts of nutrients in the marine environment where they don't naturally exist. You know, when you talk about some of these research projects that are already underway, it leads us to the obvious question of how can we draw a distinction between research and deployment of geoengineering. Can you speak to that issue? I think that's one of the biggest challenges for those uh, who would uh, be proponents of geoengineering research, because in order to uh, carry out an experiment that is big enough to cause measurable effects on the climate system, and those effects um, to be uh, tied back to the, the interventions that you've made, you've already done geoengineering. You've already changed the climatic system. So to say that that is research rather than deployment, I think, is, uh, is stretching the truth. And of course, uh, there are smaller experiments that you could do that perhaps would have more intermittent uh, or, or, or shorter-lived effects. But no one is really certain what that scale is. Where does that, uh, that change take place? And I suspect it will depend very much on what you do, at what time, where you do it, um, and how you do it. And I think that setting those boundaries to say this is research, this is not research, is going to be one of the biggest challenges that there is. I don't see, frankly, how it can be done, and that's why we're very skeptical about pushing forward very, very strongly on uh, geoengineering uh, research. We think that uh, it's, it's, a, it's a slippery slope, it's a continuum, it's going to take us in the direction of, of actually physically making changes that we may not be able to reverse. Well, one of the things that we talk about a lot on Go Green Radio is public engagement, you know, making people, everyday people aware of these types of issues and giving them strategies to get involved. How would the public know if geoengineering were occurring, whether it's ocean fertilization or whether it would be aerial spraying? How would everyday people have access to information on that and, and know that it was happening? Well, the sad thing is at the moment they probably wouldn't know um, if it is going ahead, if it was going ahead, um, because there isn't that uh, global system of governance or even regional systems of governance which would ensure that the public was getting information and that they were involved in decision-making. And I think that it's, it's absolutely critical that you, you've mentioned uh, public engagement because with something of this nature, you know, these are not experiments in a, in a laboratory. These are experiments outside where there are no walls, no ceiling, no floor, no control um, over uh, the, the, the passage of, of whatever you've put into the environment once you've released it. Uh, and I think it's, it's absolutely vital that the public is fully aware of what's being proposed um, as research in their name, uh, what the, the scale is, what the nature of, of, of uh, the research would be, what are the potential consequences, and just as importantly, what can be done if some of those consequences actually take hold? You know, is there a, a, a second uh, form of intervention that would then minimize the, the negative impacts if things go wrong or if there are unpredictable uh, and unpredicted effects? And I think that at the moment, the public uh, in general probably have never heard of geoengineering as a concept, or if they have, they probably only have quite a, 
um, a, a broad outline of, of what it might involve. I think it's still seen by many people as being somewhat in the realms of science fiction. Uh, and, of course, the real worry is that there are people who are out there looking at it much more seriously as something that they want to press ahead and do now. Uh, and I just don't think, without the, uh, the system of governance in place, um, that the public uh, will have the opportunity to get involved in making decisions that, that, in the end, will impact all of us. Well said, Dr. Santillo. I think, you know, we're, we're really set up to bring um, a couple of guests on in the next segment who will address that issue and are very concerned about that and share your point of view perfectly. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more with Dr. Santillo and a couple of new guests that we'll be bringing on. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. If you're just tuning in, our guest up to this point has been Dr. David Santillo. He's a senior scientist for Greenpeace. Um, t- we're going to be joined by two more guests now. We're bringing in George Barnes, who's a director and producer for a documentary called Look Up, which is all about geoengineering. And we're also bringing on Dane Wigington, who is featured in George's movie. Welcome, gentlemen. So glad that you could join us. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Jill. Thank you, Jill. You bet. Now, George, to start with you, in many ways, um, the issue of geoengineering has not been a mainstream topic, and and Dr. Santillo referred to this just as we were going to break in the last segment. Uh, We've got scientists and public policymakers studying it, but I, I think a lot of everyday people still don't know anything about it. You've got a movie, you've got a website, and you've got a highly interactive smartphone app that aims to remedy exactly that situation, to bring awareness um, to the general public. Tell our listeners why you've invested so much of your energy in raising awareness about geoengineering. Okay. Well, like you said, I actually am uh, more of a regular person. I'm I'm not uh, an activist, per se, or an environmentalist, per se, but uh, 
when I discovered this strange phenomenon in the sky accidentally, um, I just I immediately had our news producer do some research on what I was seeing because what I had seen in a time lapse test was uh, when the time lapse was played in reverse at high speed, the entire overcast sky was in fact created by these jets flying in a grid pattern over my home. And when we processed the footage backwards by accident because we were testing it, and uh, we have a news producer in the company, and I said, what is going on here? And uh, she said, I don't know, but I'll do some research and get back to you. She came back to me with geoengineering. She said, this is, uh, this is what it is. And once I did... Once I looked at the research that she came up with, I just realized this is absolutely uh, terrifying. The lack of regulation, the lack of definitions between experimentation and deployment, uh, and it's one of those things that absolutely changed my world, changed my life at that moment. And I realized I just had to uh, do what I do, which is mainstream communications to raise awareness to this issue because uh, there were just a lot of things that I'm, I'm not okay with. So we made this film, and it's a documentary called Look Up. But beyond just a regular documentary, I wanted to offer viewers uh, an action item. There's a lot of great documentaries out there. Greenpeace has done fantastic things also for just raising awareness to environmental issues. Uh, there are a lot of documentaries on humanitarian issues, but none had an action item. So in thinking about it, uh, I came up with an app, a mobile app. So when you see indications of geoengineering taking place in the sky, you can just take a picture with one click and send it to the legislators wherever you, wherever you are based in, based on your geolocation. It appropriately sends it to the correct legislators, and the app is called Skyder Alert. And the idea is not only to raise awareness to the regular population, but also to raise awareness to the politicians, because there is such a lack of uh, oversight or governance on this issue, there, uh, there is no say on whether or not it can be going on or not. And I think a lot of the politicians are not even aware that this is going on. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Santillo, you know, as a senior scientist for one of the most respected environmental advocacy groups in the world, I mean, Greenpeace is known for highly effective grassroots advocacy. How does Greenpeace as an organization view public involvement in this debate about geoengineering? At the moment, I would say that there's very little public involvement. uh, And and what there has been uh, have uh, all too often been attempts to try to convince people that, uh, in fact, this is a perfectly safe thing to research, that it's uh, something that will uh, you know, be very positive in terms of, of providing us uh, with, with the potential for solutions to, uh, to climate change. Uh, I think that uh, people really need to uh, be engaged at a, at, a, at a much deeper level. I think that people have to have uh, balanced information. They have to have information which is uh, not selected in order to uh, push one particular scheme or one particular idea. And we should actually trust that people can form their own opinions when they're given that kind of information. And, you know, one thing that's, that's most frustrating and that we see again and again in relation to public engagement is that uncertainties are played down. Uh, there's almost an assumption that, uh, that the public won't understand where there's uncertainties, where there are uh, unknowns, where there's, there's almost ignorance of, uh, of potential impacts and, and, and effectiveness. And I think we have to be more honest and we have to be more trusting with people 
uh, that they do get these things. Uh, and, and we really have to be uh, uh, clear uh, what is being proposed so that we can get true uh, views from people as to whether they feel that that's the right thing to be doing in their name. Hey, mm-hmm. Jill. Sure. One thing that I'd like to, I'd like to add, and it hasn't come up to, uh, to the conversation yet, and we have talked about geoengineering as a uh, science or an experimentation for the purpose of climate change, but as, again, as a regular guy, after my news producer did the research, what I realized is while the, while the direction or intention is to mitigate or offset climate change, the result is a human health implication. Mm-hmm. And that really is what bothered me. Whether or not you could raise or lower the temperature, that's one thing. But when you do the research and you see the chemicals that are in these patents of the, the geoengineering uh, components, I just can't have my children breathing toxic things. I just, I'm just not okay with it. So it has become, my direction has not been, well, it's an environmental issue or it's a climate change issue. It's a human health issue that affects everybody and everything that breathes and it continues on to to wildlife i have a daughter who's a bird watcher an avid avid bird watcher and two weeks ago she said to me daddy where'd all the birds go well i think it's a valid point and one more reason why the public should have some transparency into these issues and have a say in the debate. And that's why I want to bring on Dane. Dane Wigington, you've collected some evidence um, that chemicals and substances found in some of the geoengineering patents that are public information are actually present in unnatural amounts in the area around your private land. And and you've talked about on our show before that it's your belief that aerial geoengineering is already occurring in your area. Talk to us about your findings and what you would encourage our listeners to do if they want to learn more. First, Jill, my background is with Bechtel Power Corporation in renewable energy. This is my background. My home is on the cover of the world's largest renewable energy magazine. I moved to the Pacific Northwest to try to find clean air. When these grid patterns, as George described, were appearing above my home, blocking in some days 60, 70, and even 80% of my solar uptake, you know, this is my background. I mean, this was a profound reduction of solar PV uptake. So my research again led me to geoengineering. And <clears throat> for 10 years, I've devoted my life to this because clearly these programs are not proposals, but fully deployed. And with all due respect to Dr. Santillo, I, I cannot imagine that they are not aware that these programs are deployed. And when we have top U.S. military leaders, this is on the record, people can verify what I'm saying, stating that climate change is the greatest U.S. national security threat. We have the same military leaders uh, with with documents uh, from the U.S. military uh, that express the desire to own the weather. When we have documents from uh, presidential documents going back to 1966 showing the U.S. already evolved with weather modification program with budgets in the hundreds of millions of dollars, even then, I, I don't understand how there could be any plausible denial that these programs are fully deployed. And the amount of metal falling on us, Jill, is not a little high. It's astronomically high. And I know that the the official the official uh, storyline for geoengineering is sulfur dioxide, but in fact we have the world's most recognized geoengineers like David Keith, the patents from Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, talking about aluminum oxide as a primary ingredient. In fact, we've had aluminum tests here that show levels of aluminum that have escalated up to 50,000% in the last seven, eight years in direct correlation with the increase in solar obscuration, which is what we see happening in the skies. So I, I don't really understand how there could be 
any plausible denial that these programs are not proposals, and they've long since been fully deployed. And when we have global dimming, which I'm sure Dr. Santillo is familiar with, now at 22% or more, uh, clearly uh, a lot of the sun is being blocked. And uh, quite simply, I, I don't we have films of these tankers, by the way, spraying at altitude, too. We have KC-10s, KC-135s, military tankers, up-close footage spraying at altitude, nozzles visible, uh, you know, material being dispersed from these nozzles. Same thing we see uh, uh, from the ground, the same material showing up on the ground. We know it's not coming from China uh, because of CARB, California Air Resources Board studies. So I, I, I can't fathom how anyone that's really studying anything atmospherically could not uh, know these programs are fully deployed. Dr. Santillo, do you want to comment on that? Well, I think that there is quite a lot of, of, of debate over whether uh, these kinds of, of programs uh, are uh, extensively deployed already. I think part of the difficulty is uh, getting access to uh, publicly available uh, data from, uh, you know, from, from the sources that are, uh, that are verifiable. Uh, and that's not to, in any way, to, to discount the kind of information you're talking about, uh, and to uh, you know dis- discredit the uh, the types of, of evidence that you're uh, you're saying is is out there. But I think there is quite a lot of debate over um, whether what we're seeing is uh, is deliberate intervention, whether it's a consequence of uh, of, of uh, aircraft activity in other ways. Uh, and I think the jury is out on on that. And part of the problem is that these discussions and debates are not taking place in the research community. They're not taking place uh, in the public eye. Uh, there are clearly activities that are, that are going on and that, that, that could be going on into the future uh, that people are simply not being told about. Um, you, weather modification has been on the cards for a long time. It's something that has been practiced in some parts of the world uh, with uh, very varied degrees of, of effectiveness uh, and with relatively little monitoring of the uh, the adverse consequences of it. So I think that the, the points that are being raised here are very serious points, and there's something that, that does need a coordinated uh, effort to uh, to research in order to see, you know, just what the uh, the scale of these programs and impact is. You know, it's funny as as I hear the discussion going on today, it, it occurs to me that there's funding to research geoengineering, and we've identified some of the private funding sources for that, but <laughs> on the flip side, I'm not sure about the same amount of funding being put into researching the impacts, uh, you know, of the the research itself on in geoengineering. And I'm wondering if there's as much emphasis on, you know, the the fallout of the research um, as as there is on the research itself. Interesting point. Well, Jill, I think one of the core issues with that is uh, it's just a different department. You know, not in defense of, of the government or the system, but I do, I do a lot of uh, um, high-level high level production work, and I see how, how corporations and governments do um, kind of compartmentalize their assignments. So if the focus and the emphasis is going to be on climate engineering, then you're going to have your group that's specifically focused on climate results. But the reality is if the, if the fallout, which obviously these chemicals are dangerous to human health, becomes a health issue, it's an entirely different division, a different department, a different process. Everything right. is completely different. And I think that is a huge, huge issue. Right. That is the issue in my mind. Well, it's very interesting. Food for thought, everyone. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have more. So don't go away, folks. More Go Green Radio right after this.
Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I want to give a quick shout out to all my tweeps out there listening on your computer or your smartphone. Thanks for joining us and thanks for being part of the Twitter conversation that goes on around Go Green Radio. If you'd like to follow me, my handle is at Jill Buck. And so you can join in the conversation. We've also got a lot of activity going on on our Facebook page. It's our Go Green Face Space. That's what it's called. If you want to check out all of these things, you can just go to the show website and there's a there's a link to just about every possible way to connect with me, so get on there. Dr. Santillo, I have a two-part question for you. Um, the first part is, who stands to profit if geoengineering is deployed? And the flip side of that question is, <laughs> and this is the part that, that's a little bit uh, anxiety-producing for me, is there anyone with the authority to stop geoengineering from being deployed? Okay. Uh, who stands to profit? Well, I think it really depends on the, the type of geoengineering that, uh, that you're talking about. Clearly, there are um, companies out there, there are research scientists who are either looking to patent or have already patented geoengineering uh, technologies and, uh, and, and, and uh, techniques to do it with. Uh, so I guess they stand to, to profit if, uh, if these things are ever um, moved up into a, a larger scale of research or, in effect, deployed. There's also the potential for money to be made by commercial uh, entities in offsetting uh, for carbon emissions where they're looking at techniques that will reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere or at least attempt to do that. And the big problem there, I think, is, is whether it will ever be possible to verify those kinds of offsets that are being talked about. More broadly than that, I guess that when you start looking at the fact that uh, you know, large uh, commercial operations or even national operations could aim to uh, modify the climate in a, in a more regional context, then there are going to be winners and losers in many ways, not just financially, uh, but also environmentally, socially, uh, and, and also in terms of, of health consequences. Now, if anyone wanted to stop geoengineering from being deployed, at the moment, with the one exception of ocean fertilization that we've talked about, for which there is now an international regulation, it would be up to national governments to take an individual stance on, uh, on, on preventing those kinds of things from going ahead. 
And that's one of the consequences of there still not being this global, transparent, effective system that everyone agrees to and everyone adheres to. And when you're talking about something that's supposed to have global impacts, that's a huge uh, gap in the governance regime. Mm-hmm. Now, George, you you are going to be presenting your movie and your passion for this issue at the Conscious Living Expo in L.A. very soon. I'm anxious to know what your goal is for that event. My goal is to just increase awareness, uh, increase awareness for the general public to get themselves educated. And so many things are coming out in the news. Even today, if someone Googles Atlanta snow not melting, there are just so many things that are happening. Uh, If you look in the skies, you see the overcast, the increased overcast, and the horizon always being white. I want people to question it. I want them to go and look up geoengineering, Google geoengineering, Google Skyder Alert, and get themselves educated. And through their own education, they'll see that they just have to share the information with people and reach out to governments because there does need to be a, a ban on it. But before the ban, you have to have awareness, and everybody needs to know about it. And honestly, I don't even think all the, uh, the political leaders are aware of it. I don't believe that they are right now. I, I know some of them, they have to be, but I believe most are not, and people just need to be aware. Now, Dane, you live in California, right? I do. Well, I was checking on the U.S. Congress House um, Science and Technology Committee list yesterday. And, in fact, one of the congressmen on that Science and Technology Committee, which held the hearings on geoengineering in 2010, is from California, Eric Swalwell. If Eric were to call you up after this show and ask you what you recommend to the House of Representatives in terms of legislation to regulate geoengineering, what would you say? I would say that any notion of carrying out geoengineering, which is it's clearly already being done, is we, we can see the results. We don't need to question this. And what um, certainly the planet is in meltdown. And anybody who looks at hard data must come to that conclusion. We have methane release happening in the Arctic and other places in the globe. The official narrative is is what I heard Dr. Santillo repeat was that geoengineering could cause drought in lots of places around the world, but the official narrative doesn't mention the U.S. And this is astounding because why would the U.S. be any different? So we have satellite photographs of blanket grid spraying over the eastern Pacific day in, day out, 24-7. We have a library of of these satellite photos. So what do we have in California? The worst drought in recorded history by far. We have presidents of countries like Iran stating on the floor of the U.N. multiple times that their country is being droughted out by Western climate modification programs. And what's distressing is when you have environmental organizations like Greenpeace and others that are really towing the official narrative that these programs are only proposals when, again, we have film of them spraying. We have a virtual mountain of toxic metals falling on us so much it's changing soil pHs in the Pacific Northwest 10 to 12 times toward alkaline. It's, it's killing everything. Our aquatic insect life here has plunged 90%, according to surveys taken by U.S. Forest Service biologists. So we have a virtual cataclysm happening here. Uh, exactly the results that we know we would expect with geoengineering are occurring here in California and other places around the globe right now. We have films of them spraying. There's no winners in this equation. Geoengineering is the epitome of human insanity, and I, I hope people investigate. That's my goal. Our site is our website is geoengineeringwatch.org, and I, I only hope and pray people investigate because these, these are not proposals. These programs are fully deployed, Joe. So, again, if Congressman Swalwell calls you up, Dane, what are the what are the suggestions that you have for regulation? That if he has any regard for his 
his posterity, himself, or life on Earth, that they would put an immediate end to geoengineering, period. And, and that any denial that these programs are going on is simply a cover-up. At, this at point. all levels, including experimentation and research as well, because that, like Correct. Dr. Santillo said, the, the problem is the definition of research or experimentation. It just mm -hmm. needs to stop completely. You don't want to experiment with a nuclear bomb. Well, you don't want to do a research with a nuclear bomb because you, you have to deploy it. Any, any notion, again, though, that these programs aren't going on, we have reels and reels and reels of footage of up-close uh, shots of these tankers spraying at altitude, military tankers. Um, there's no plausible denial that these programs are going on. Dr. Santillo, how hopeful are you that an international set of regulations on geoengineering could actually be enforced, um, whether it be by individual countries or the UN? Well, I think we have to have some hope that, that, that that's going to be possible. And ultimately, even if it was a, a United Nations level agreement, it would rely on uh, the individual nation states to, to enforce these things, because obviously these are activities that would uh, potentially be carried out or, or may even be being carried out um, within their own territories or by, uh, you know, from vessels or aircraft that are, that are registered in, in those nation states. Um, but I think that that's what we're, we're really missing at the moment, is that understanding that this is something which is, uh, which is now. It's not something in the future it's something which we really have to, to get a handle on now in order to get proper governance in place. I wouldn't disagree at all uh, that we need to see a, an end to uh, these kinds of, uh, uh, of, of, of large-scale experiments um, because they're not experiments. When you, when you start to go to that kind of level, it is deployment. It's going to have an impact on the systems that, uh, that are under study uh, and perhaps in ways that are unpredictable and, and, and maybe irreversible. But I think you know, we've seen with ocean fertilization that it's by no means impossible to move a lot of countries within a relatively few years from a, a position of knowing absolutely nothing, not even having ocean fertilization on their radar, to having a legal ban in place uh, for that activity uh, across uh, a, a, at least uh, 90 countries around the world. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's a big step forward. I think what we've got to look at now is getting a similar level of control for all of those other uh, proposals for geoengineering, and that can only really be done by all countries coming together. Well, we are out of time, and I, I think I could continue this conversation for several hours. I want to thank each of you so much for joining us today on Go Green Radio, and I'd encourage our listeners to get out there. I mean, gosh, even if you just Google geoengineering, there's quite a bit of credible information out there. Um, but but follow up with Greenpeace. Follow up with George and his uh, movie. Dane is a part of that movie. Uh, the movie's called Look Up. You can find Skyder Alert, uh, the app at skyderalert.com. Folks, we're going to be here, same time same place next week with more go green radio until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green did you get some terrific ideas from today's show please join us for more next friday at 9 a.m pacific time noon eastern time it's go green radio with jill buck here on voice america go green radio is proudly sponsored by covanta energy a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information we'll see you here next week